get started here. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you again for the privilege we have of coming together to study your word, this book of 2 Corinthians. Thank you for what we've learned and give us grace and help and by the Holy Spirit and enable us to uh, be obedient to what we can understand and know and apply to our own hearts and ministries and lives and service for you. Do pray for our dear friends, for Lori and uh, her situation. We pray that these surgeries will be successful and she will be able to recover and to be able to leave that facility. For others who uh, have had other difficulties, uh, for Hugh Fairchild and his continuing struggles, uh, for others in our CBC family who are having difficulties with COVID and other issues, <clears throat> we ask your uh, mercy and we ask for your healing in their lives. So we ask your blessing on our time together this evening, and we pray that you will uh, use it to strengthen our spiritual lives and our ultimately our service for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at Second uh, Corinthians, um, and we are talking about Paul's defense of his authority. This is the third and final section of the epistle. <clears throat> Certainly, beginning in chapter 10, we do take up a new section, a new topic in Paul's discussion. And we noticed, as we talked about at the beginning of chapter 10, a change of tone in that Paul has apparently heard some disturbing news about a situation in the church. Uh, clearly, we have troublemakers who have come in from the outside. These are apparently people from Palestine, uh, Jewish people, apparently, people who claim to have connections or authority from the church at Jerusalem. They claim actually to be apostles, uh, as we'll see. And so uh, they are attacking Paul, his authority, and so forth, and ingratiating, trying to ingratiate themselves with the church at Corinth and replace Paul. And Paul sees them as having very evil motives and self-serving purposes and not really concerned with the ultimate, the best welfare for the church. So he is he has to defend his authority here because that's what they're doing. They're attacking Paul and saying, Paul really has no authority. He has no letters from Jerusalem. He's not really, doesn't have apostolic authority. He's not acting like an apostle should act. He's not, he's not acting like he should. And so he's not conducting his ministry as he should. And so you can't really look to him and depend upon him, look to us. And Paul begins by a discussion of what we call here the weapons of his authority, his weapons and his authority. And, and as I mentioned to Ed, when I talked about irony here and sarcasm, this whole section is filled with irony and sarcasm. Remember we said we're using irony in the sense of uh, a sarcastic expression in which the intended meaning is the opposite, you know. Uh, you know, we might say to somebody, they might suggest some sort of plan 
something we should do. And we say, well, that's a smart plan. That's a smart plan. No, we don't mean it's smart. We mean it's dumb. It's a dumb plan. But we say smart ironically or sarcastically. So we see that <clears throat> throughout this section uh, of the epistle. And so Paul uh, begins here and he talks about his, uh, his authority, his weapons, his spiritual weapons. He's not using physical weapons. His weapons are spiritual in nature, the knowledge of God. We're making our thoughts captive to Christ, to the truth of God's word and so forth. But he does have weapons and he does spiritual weapons and he can punish disobedience and he'll do it in the case of the Corinthians if that's necessary, if they don't uh, come around to the correct way of thinking. And you know, he accuses them of just judging by appearances and superficial things. Um, he goes on to talk about his sphere of service. That is, the Corinthians are, with, are within what he calls his sphere of service. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He was given that ministry by Jesus on the Damascus Road. And that was confirmed <clears throat> at the Jerusalem Council, or even before then, when you know they agreed, the Jerusalem pillars of the church, the apostles there agreed, yeah, Paul, you should go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews. And so Paul is the, not that they, not that the other people can't minister at all to the Jews, to the Gentiles, but that's that's this is mainly Paul's sphere of ministry. And Paul is going out there into the Roman Empire, uh, ministering and, and establishing Gentile churches. And so uh, Paul's ministry, you remember, is to try to go where the gospel had not been preached before. Uh, he goes to, uh, he's a pioneer missionary, and he establishes churches and tries to establish churches in large cities. And then he lets people in those cities uh, evangelize the outlying hinterlands and other areas, other cities in the area. That's his general uh, approach to ministry. And so he says, these people are intruding, really, in areas that they have no business intruding in. Uh, they should be back in Jerusalem if that's who they're from, really from. And they shouldn't be boasting about work that they haven't done. Apparently, they're boasting and suggesting that, uh, you know, the, the Corinthians' success, their, their Christianity is somehow due to these people, you know, which is amazingly unbelievable. But apparently, they're, they're convincing some of the Corinthians that that's the case. So Paul now begins in chapter 11, continuing this discussion of his authority. And he speaks here about his jealousy for the Corinthians. That what he's doing, he's doing it because he loves them. He's con he is concerned for their welfare, for their best welfare. He's not trying to ingratiate himself or build himself up. It's for them. He's doing this and for the cause of the gospel. And so he begins again with this sarcasm and saying, you know, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me, you know. So uh, he's again using this kind of language. I say here in uh, verse one, about verse one here, 
the news of the worsening situation at Corinth now leads, uh, now leads Paul to abandon his normal aversion towards self-praise and to boast in his ministerial achievements. Certainly not comfortable in doing so, but as he later notes in 12.11, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. Paul has previously stated that self-praise is inadmissible and it's worthless, ultimately. But he realizes that this present situation demands it if his converts at Corinth are to be preserved intact for Christ. Uh, Paul's adversaries here are indulging in self-praise, which he men has mentioned throughout the epistle, chapter 5, chapter 10, and so forth. And the Corinthians were apparently sympathetic, largely sympathetic to this uh, self-praise that these opponents were, were giving themselves. So Paul's hand is sort of forced here, as he says in 12.11. You drove me to it. I'm, I'm forced to tell you what you should already know, what should be obvious to you. He's got to indulge in what he thinks is really foolish boasting in order to win the, the Corinthians' attention try to save the church the best he can. So uh, reluctantly, he decides to use their methods. Uh, unlike theirs, his motive is not personal gain. You know, they're doing it for personal gain. They're talking about their great accomplishments to ingratiate themselves, to enhance themselves. Paul's doing it for the Corinthians' welfare, he says in verse two. We'll see. Paul would be boasting in the Lord, he says. So he ironically, sarcastically requests the Corinthians indulgence. You know, put up with a little foolishness here. Yes, please put up with me. Well, why should the Corinthians indulge Paul here? Well, he gives some reasons here now in verse two. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul decides to use an illustration here of a virgin being betrothed to her husband, in this case, the this Corinthian church betrothed to her husband, Christ, you know, and, and then the illustration of Eve being deceived and so forth. Uh, I say the first reason the Corinthians should put up with Paul's foolishness is his divine jealousy for the Corinthians' purity that he talks about here in verses two and three. So with a jealousy that sprang from God, and was like God's own jealousy for his people. Paul was jealousy for his converts, undivided loyalty. I mean, this is, uh, you know, like the statements we see in Hosea, where Hosea uses that kind of language. My people consult a wooden idol, and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them away. They are unfaithful to their God. And so he's using that kind of language here. I want you to be pure as a virgin presented to Christ. 
So he's jealous for these converts with a godly jealousy, he says here. Uh, he wants their undivided loyalty in between their conversion, which here he calls their betrothed. I promised you to one husband. That's the word for I betrothed you to one husband, one husband. That's your conversion. So my, I might present you. Well, that's the glorification. So he wants them to be, uh, to be devoted to Christ only between their conversion and their glorification without, you know, being led astray. Uh, and so Paul pictures himself here as sort of like the father of the bride, whose ultimate goal is to present the church of God in Corinth as, you know, pure virgin to the husband at his appearance. I say here, while human jealousy is a vice, divine jealousy is a virtue. Paul shares in that godly jealousy because he, can, he is concerned with the Corinthians' loyalty to Christ. So he's there, he sees himself rightly as their spiritual father. And so he has a passionate desire for their pure devotion to Christ, you know, and they're, because they're his spiritual children. I say here, the reason for uh, Paul's jealousy for the Corinthians was his fear based on disturbing evidence, as we'll see in verse four, that their minds and affections might be corrupted so that they would lose their single-minded faithfulness to Christ. Now, he recognizes these false apostles as Satan's agent, as, as we'll see in verse 15, he calls them really from Satan. And therefore, they're capable of repeating at Corinth what Satan successfully did in the Garden of Eden, uh, deception by cunning. And that's, what he, that's why he's comparing these people to, to Eve in the Garden. These people could be deceived by the cunning of these false teachers, these agents of Satan, these false apostles. And so the danger here is this intellectual deception, which leads to spiritual apostasy, ultimately leading to apostasy as someone who professes faith in Christ and who turns away from that faith. And he sees them possibly turning away from that faith by following these teachers. Verse four, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So the second reason for Paul to play the fool was the Corinthians' willingness to put up with rivals who presented a different message. Paul now focuses his fears more precisely on a situation that was probably occurring at Corinth. The words comes to you suggests outsiders, remember, rather than opponents within the Corinthian church itself. Now, it's difficult to know exactly, as I say here, the precise content of the message of these false apostles. Um, most likely, as I say here, they were uh, Palestinian Jews. Um, I don't know why I've got Hebrews 11.22 there. <laughs> I mean, it should be 2 Corinthians 11.22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. He's, he's going to talk about their claims uh, here in verse 22. So they're claiming to be Hebrews. Uh, 
they, you know, they're, they, they apparently claim to be backed by the Jerusalem church. Um, I'll say they came to Corinth pro probably carrying letters of reference and sporting impressive credentials such as visions, ecstatic experience, and revelations. Because he'll say in chapter 12, I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Remember, he goes on then to relate, says, listen, if you, if you think people have had revelations, I was caught up into heaven. Okay. I, I, I was in heaven. I was caught up into heaven. And I saw things that I can't even allow to tell you about. <laughs> if we want to compare revelations. He says in verse 12, I perceived and demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostles, including signs and wonders and miracles. So uh, they apparently uh, tried to claim the same thing. Uh, they tried to convince the Corinthians by the use of polished delivery and powerful rhetoric. Uh, he says, you remember in 2 Corinthians 10, he said, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. Later, he'll say in verse six, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. So remember, I've talked about before that one of the most important uh, characteristics are skills that was, you know, what, what kind of skills do people want today? You know, they might want uh, engineering skills or, you know, there's all kinds of skills people might want. Well, in that day, especially, people wanted rhetorical skills. The ability to be able to get up and speak, speak well, speak extemporaneously, be able to make arguments and so forth. And so there were schools for this all throughout the Roman world, the Greek world. Uh, it was something that was taught quite a bit even up to modern times, but not so much now. Rhetoric is not really emphasized at all. In fact, rhetoric sort of has a bad name. You know, it's just a bunch of rhetoric. It has a negative sense. Um, so they were apparently uh, very capable speakers, very polished, and this was impressive because the Corinthians grew up in a world where this was appreciated. Uh, uh, very, very much. So apparently these people sort of maybe focused on these extraordinary gifts of the spirit, this rhetoric. Uh, you know, Paul refers to the, them as preaching sort of another Jesus, another gospel. It's, it's not, it, it's so far removed. They're emphasizing the wrong thing so much. Uh, we have some of that you know, we've had some of that in our day where people emphasize power evangelism and a lot of things where they start departing from the gospel they, and they're emphasizing the things, the wrong things so much that it's easy to get away from emphasizing justification by faith and the important things, the things that really are the gospel. He says in verse five, I do not think that I am the least inferior to those, quote, super apostles. Paul's third reason for the Corinthians to put up with his foolishness is his claim not to be in the least inferior to the super apostles. The super apostles is Paul's sarcastic way of referring to the false apostles who had infiltrated the Corinthian church 
and were in reality not apostles at all, except in their own arrogantly inflated opinion of themselves. In verse 13, Paul will call them false apostles and deceitful workers. Uh, in verse 6, he'll say, you know, as I just read, that he may, he concedes, he may be less skilled in rhetoric, but, you know, than those super apostles. So these, these men had gained some rhetorical skills, arts taught in the Hellenistic world and so forth. They were, they were apparently very impressive people in person. And this was very impressive to the Corinthians. Verse six, I may not be a, I may, I may indeed be an untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. With regard to his lack of professional training and skill in rhetoric, Paul is willing to admit the possibility that he may not be as professional as others, but he by no means concedes the point to his critics. Uh, but in his judgment, his expertise is in knowledge, uh, which he had, you know, made perfectly clear to the Corinthians, uh, more than compensated for any deficiency in the ability to speak. Matter, matter is more important than manner. Content is more important than how it's said. Now, it's good to be able to speak well and speak correctly and uh, say it in a, in a pleasing way, a good way, but the content is more important. You know, you can speak, <laughs> most false teachers speak their false teaching very well. That's the problem. Well, we come now to uh, number four here in Paul's defense of his authority, and that's, uh, he talks about his preaching policy. Verse seven, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I rubbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. This is a difficult thing for us to grasp in our day because we think of people who asked for money. We, we, we look with suspicion on anybody who asks for money. <laughs> but itinerant teachers of the Hellenistic age commonly gain their financial support by charging a fee for their instructions. So uh, this, this was a very common thing. People went from city to city teaching various subjects, itinerant teachers, and they would charge a fee for their instruction. Others accepted the patronage of some wealthy person. So they were supported by some wealthy person or some group. Traveling teachers who may were concerned about their reputation, however, would work often work at a trade. Paul refused patronage and worked at his trade, not only in Corinth, but in Thessalonica. Um, you know, he did this to remove any hindrances to the gospel. Now this this is a this comes up in 1 Corinthians right in chapter 9. Paul's Paul's authority is questioned as early as 1 Corinthians. It really comes under attack here, but it's even questionable by the Corinthians themselves. Uh, in 1 Corinthians there's no one outside 
Corinth from outside coming in attacking Paul. But the Corinthians wonder about Paul himself. Why doesn't he take our money? You know, <laughs> that's a little opposite of what we would think. You know, we want we want to know why is this guy want our money? You know, what what why why do they want our money? But in that day, <clears throat> they expected you expected to be supported by the people you taught or and so forth. And so Paul says in chapter 9, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 9, 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, so not to make full use of my right as a preacher of the gospel. And I left out a lot of the argument there, but the argument Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 9 is, if I was to charge for you know, my preaching, if I was to have you give me money, support me, you might think that it costs, salvation costs something, that in order to be saved, you got to pay money. You know, that if you give so much money, you will have spend less time in purgatory, that kind of thing. And so Paul didn't want that. He did, so Paul refused to take money, according to what we see in Acts and in the epistles, from the people he was preaching to generally. He wouldn't take any money from that church because he wanted to present the gospel. He wanted his preaching to represent the freeness of the gospel. So he wanted to remove any hindrances to the gospel, as he says here. Um. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, he does argue that he has the right to be supported by his Corinthian converts. That's his right. But he refuses to do it, as I say. And he says, I'm going to continue to refuse to do it. Um, he didn't refuse to accept traveling expenses, expenses. And he doesn't refuse to take missionary support from other churches. Philipp, the, the church at Philippi you know, chapter four supported him when he left Philippi. Thessalonica sent him money on a couple, several occasions when he, after he had left Thessalonica. I say here, Paul's problem now is that in spite of his previous explanation of his financial policy, 1 Corinthians 9, he, the believers at Corinth had been influenced by the pseudo apostles into thinking that the acceptance of remuneration for teaching was another criterion of true apostolicity. You know, their thoughts seem to be if it's the apostles' right to refrain from working for a living uh, and to get their living by the gospel, why does Paul refuse to accept our gifts? And yet he receives support from other churches. Uh, I mean, as I said, chapter nine, he says, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? In the same way, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So Paul had every right. But as I say, he wanted to present the gospel free of charge. But now they, they seem to be saying, you know, um, if it's the apostle's right to do this, as he said back in 1 Corinthians, he told us, we have the right. To, to not work for a living. We, we have the right to not work for a living. And the Lord has commanded that, that the church should support us. Why does Paul refuse to accept our gifts? 
And so apparently Paul's rivals use this refusal of Paul against him to say, well, he's not really apostle. Apostles, apostle would, would have the privilege of being supported by you. And his defense here, which is, uh, you know, full of irony here, Paul makes three points. First, he said, you know, he did nothing wrong. Was it a sin for me? <laughs> Was it a sin? in waiving his apostolic right to support. Uh, he did this so that no one could charge him with peddling the word of God for profit. That's remember back in chapter two, he talked about those who peddle the word of God for profit. Um, second, he says his purpose um, in what he calls lowering himself, was this sin for me to lower myself? You know, he's, this is, in irony, sarcasm here, was I was lowering myself. His, his uh, purpose in taking on this manual labor uh, was, uh, what was, uh, was to elevate them. Uh, he, I, I, I did this in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel free of charge. Uh, remember, um, this is what happened when Paul went to Corinth, when he established the church, he arrives in Corinth from Athens, Athens, and he meets Aquila and Priscilla there, who have recently come from Rome. They had been expelled from Rome because the Emperor Claudius in AD 49 had, had expelled all the Jews from Rome. And, uh, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Um, so um, Paul says, um, I did this to elevate you. I, I worked when I came to Corinth. I found a job when I came there in order to elevate you. Elevate means receiving the gospel free of charge, sharing in its riches free of charge. And third, Paul says, I robbed other churches. <laughs> uh, money that they really couldn't spare. Remember the Macedonian churches, as we saw, gave out of their poverty. He, he, he robbed other churches because he wanted to serve the Corinthians more effectively. From them to serve you. I did this to give the gospel to you freely, to serve you. That's why I've done what I've done. Verse nine. And when I came to you and I needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Paul now reminds the Corinthians that even after his personal funds were depleted and he began to need something, he still did not burden any of them. So we read there, you know, in Acts 18 about his initial visit in the fall of AD 50 uh, to Corinth and established the church. And he went there and uh, he worked with Priscilla and Aquila uh, worked with them, made, earned his money there. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, 
But when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, remember Paul had, uh, Paul, well, you don't know that here, but Paul had sent them back to Macedonia to check on the churches while he had left Athens and gone on to Corinth. So he's there by himself. He meets Priscilla and Aquila. He's speaking in the synagogue. But when they came, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, how did he do that? Well, it's a fair inference from this present verse that the reason was that the brothers who came from Macedonia, as we see here in verse 9, um, probably Silas and Timothy, uh, maybe others, but certainly them, brought some sort of monetary gifts, possibly from Philippi, as I said, possibly from Thessalonica. He mentions that in 1 Thessalon Thessalonians 3, Philippians 4. So the, the, providentially, these gifts arrived, you know, just when his resources had failed and um, and he began to, you know, need things. But even in this extreme situation, he refused to burden anyone. And so he had this policy of financial independence. He says, that's going to continue to be my policy. Uh, verse 10. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia, now Achaia, remember, is that province that Corinth and Athens are a part of, Macedonia is where Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi are at. But he says, uh, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. I see here, Paul's refusal to take payment for preaching the gospel now takes the form of an oath. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, Paul calls his refusal to accept support from the Corinthians his boast. So none of his opponents will be able, he says, you know, to block his policy of offering the gospel free of charge. Back in verse 7, I said uh, his refusal to accept pay from the Corinthians was in order to elevate them. Now in verse 11, he points out an additional motive, his deep love for the church. Um, his deep love for the church. Uh some, some had, uh, you know, asserted that, as we said, some had asserted that his failure to accept promises, excuse me, accept payment was somehow a lack of affection for the Corinthians. You know, he doesn't really love you. He would treat you like he should. <laughs> and Paul dismisses this by, you know, appealing to God's knowledge of his heart. You know, because I do not love you, God knows I do. And his own explanation is giving in verse 12. I will keep on doing what I'm doing so that I will cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us and the things they boast about. As I was here, the intruders at Corinth had apparently received some remuneration for their instruction regarding themselves as in some sense apostles. They probably felt fully within their rights and accepting or even demanding appropriate wages. This validated their apostleship. 
So Paul's uh, policy would be somewhat of an embarrassment to them. They have to explain away why they're accepting and Paul's not. They couldn't boast as he did about preaching the message of the gospel without charge. So this is Paul's reason. This is his motive for persisting in his longstanding policy to deprive his, deprive his opponents of the opportunity they longed for so that they might boast uh, that they were working at Corinth, you know, precisely on the same terms that he had been. So he, he hoped that his, you know, his own financial independence would uh, highlight his rival's financial, financial dependence. And, and this would cause the, uh, you know, the Corinthians to rethink their attitude toward him and, and see the truth here of what's going on. Finally, uh, we'll take a look at Paul's opponents here. He does say some things about them. For such people that I've been talking about are false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I see here, Paul does not actually contest the right of his adversaries to financial support. The real reason he opposed them and why they presented a great danger to the Corinthians was because they were in fact false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. They were apostolic pretenders. They passed themselves off as we see here, you know, righteous uh, servants of Christ as we'll see in verse 23, he says. Real, in reality, he, he sees them correctly here as agents of Satan. You know, they're deceivers, like Satan is a deceiver, to masquerade as an angel of light here. Um, church leaders can seem genuine in appearance and profession, and yet in actuality by, be Satan's minions. right? Church leaders can seem genuine in appearance and profession and yet be Satan's minion. So we have to judge church leaders by scripture, by, by the, not by their claims and, you know, all this kind of stuff, but by scripture. And Paul says the destiny of these men would be in accord with their actual deeds they performed not their outward appearance, they adopt it. That's not what's going to judge them. It'll be in accordance with scripture with what they actually do, their deeds. Well, uh, we look now at Paul's boasting as a fool. Still talking about Paul's authority. That's the subject of the whole thing. Uh, but now we come to this section where Paul uses Paul says he's going to boast like a fool would boast. And he's going to begin by explaining his reluctance to boast about his accomplishments. Now we'll see 
when he starts listing his accomplishments, they're not exactly what most people would call accomplishments. <laughs> you know, uh, five times I received the, you know, I received the 30, the 40 stripes minus one. I mean, <laughs> he talks about being put in prison and beaten and all that kind of thing, but if we call, and he explains them as sort of accomplishments here. There's his resume. So he's reluctant to lay out his resume here for these people, but he feels like he must do it. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. So I see here, Paul now resumes from verses one through six, what we started there with the theme of foolish boasting. After he has digressed to defend his policy regarding financial support and to describe the true identity of his opponents, verses 13 through 15. He has decided to boast as his opponents do because he knows the Corinthians' determination to compare him with his rivals. Uh, what Paul considers what he has to do is really you know, sheer folly, the act of boasting. Nevertheless, what he's going to say is far from uh, foolish, you know, as we'll see. It's the truth. Uh, and, and that's the point. If, if, he, if Paul boasts, it won't be like his rivals because he's going to be speaking the truth here. He's going to be telling the truth. He's not going to be boasting about things that are not true like his opponents. And so the Corinthians would do well to take him seriously. But if not, he begs them, you know, tolerate me. You know, if you can't, you know. If you do, just tolerate me as you would a fool. So I may do a little boasting. Um, I mean, in, 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 the fact is the, the Corinthians have been accustomed to tolerating fools gladly, <laughs> as verse 19 will say. And the fools he has in mind, of course, are these false apostles here. Verse 17. In this confident, in this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. The, I say these two verses should probably be interpreted as a parenthesis in Paul's argument. Verse 19 actually has the Greek word has the word for there. So it's like this, you know, verse 16, he says, uh, Tolerate me so that I can do a little boasting. Verse 19, for you gladly put up with fools. You know, let no one take me for a fool, but, you know, tolerate me for a fool so that I might do a little boasting. For you gladly put up with me for fools. So here we have sort of a little parenthesis in Paul's argument here. Uh, the, the phrase here, uh, as the Lord would, you know, in uh, this self-confident boast, I'm not talking as the Lord would. That probably means something like with the Lord's authority. I'm not talking here as the Lord would or with the Lord's authority. But I'm talking like a fool. But other people boast like that, so I'm going to boast. So verses 17 and 18 are a parenthesis or an aside in which Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians, he's trying to make it clear to them, that his boasting here 
which he's about to indulge in is not something in which the Lord would approve. It's not the example of Christ, but the need to follow the example of his opponents in order to win over the Corinthians. That's what's driven him to this desperate measure of self-exaltation. Boasting of this sort is not the way of the Lord. It's the way of the world. Uh, when it comes to the way, human pride, you know, the way of the world is to boast in personal accomplishments. Many brag in this fashion. So Paul says, listen, I'm going to do it here too. Now, as I say, we're going to get a little, it's going to make it, we're going to get a big turn in this boasting here. It's not going to be what you think when we get to it. Verse 19, you gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. Here again, scathingly sarcastic. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or even puts on airs or slaps you in the face. <laughs> to my shame, I admit that we were just too weak for that. As I probably know, verses in the epistle are more scathingly ironical than this. Not only do the Corinthians, humor, Corinthians humor fools, they do so gladly since they're used to putting up with fools, that is these false apostles. Paul's boasting should be no problem for them. So the Corinthian intruders are fools because of their exaggerated opinion of their own self-importance. And the Corinthians think of themselves as wise, but in fact, they're not wise. They're being duped by these false teachers, these false apostles. So these, these false apostles were taking advantage of the Corinthians by, you know, first enslaving them in the sense of subjecting them to this domineering style of leadership. They slap you in the face and you just take it. You think it's great. He says they were also being exploited. They, ens they enslave you, they exploit you. Maybe in the financial sense is probably what's being talked about here. Exploit you financially. They're taking advantage of you, probably taking advantage of the whole church. They put on airs, which means, you know, suggest someone who has a very high opinion of themselves. They put on airs. Finally, they slap the church in the face, probably speaking of sort of insulting behavior. Paul has to confess with shame, really, he's really saying it sarcastically, you know, that his character is, I'm just too weak to do this kind of thing, too mild to use these kind of tactics of my opposition here. Well, let's look at that boasting, Paul's personal heritage and suffering. <clears throat> Let's see here where we are at. Where we are at here. I'm just taking a look at our time here. I th think, I think we will. Uh, Um, sorry to be so unorganized here, but I'm just trying to look at how much we have left here. What page are we on here, Pansy? Forty-one. And what's the mat? What's the what's the what's what forty-one? And what what's our last page? Our last page is forty-nine. 
Okay. 48 and then just a couple paragraphs. Okay. I think we'll stop here because with this next section is quite a bit longer as I look at it here. And uh, we can, uh, I think we can finish up pretty easily, maybe in two more, the last two sessions of the class that we're scheduled to have. So we've got two more. So we'll, we'll stop here for tonight and this will give us a good stopping point here. Let me stop this sharing here and we will do that tonight. All right. Thank you so much.